Welcome to The Bee's Knees, a podcast full of articles, interviews, clinical studies, and advice about knee surgery, physical therapy, and life after knee surgery. This is PJ Ewing. We're here uh, on The Bee's Knees podcast. I'm also on Knee Radio One, and we have Dr. Christopher O'Grady with us from Pensacola, Florida. Dr. O'Grady, I am so glad you're here. Welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here. I'm really excited to talk with you. Uh, we had a little pre-chat, but I was just admiring your website. I was busily scribbling down questions and things that I wanted to talk about, but I wanted to share with everybody listening, whatever whatever place you are listening, that it is called O'Grady Orthopedics, and that's that funny spelling, O-R-T-H-O-P-A-E-D-I-C-S.com, O'GradyOrthopedics.com. You should go there as you're listening to this discussion that we're going to have because there are great riches on this website. Whether you're just exploring, you want to get educated, you're looking for physical therapy exercises, you don't know what platelet-rich plasma is, you've got a shoulder issue, a sports injury, you've got a kid with a uh, you know, a knee problem. This is an amazing resource. And I would not say this if it were not true. It, it is really amazing. And it's very well presented and it's easy to navigate. So everybody listening, get thee to O'GradyOrthopedics.com. And I think you'll be able to follow along with our conversation a little bit more. All right, that out of the way. You know, I want to kind of right from the beginning, uh, Dr. O'Grady, get out of the way and just maybe put you on the spot to talk about your background a little bit, you know, where you started your school, Georgetown, your travels in the Northeast, and then sort of maybe land in Florida. How did you go all the way from Georgetown to Pensacola, Florida? Tell us about that. So, yeah, I actually, I started even more North in Boston. So I, I've kind of just slowly migrated South, um, born and raised in the city of Boston and uh, grew up in the city there till I went to Georgetown and then stayed there for med school as well. So I was in DC for almost nine years, um, which I loved and really thought I would stay in the city forever. Ended up going to New York City for my orthopedic residency and lived in, in Queens. And then because I had the Navy pay for my medical school through a program called HPSP, kind of like a ROTC program. They then, when I became active duty, sent me to Pensacola, Florida, which I had never heard of, actually. I had to kind of pull out a map to figure out where it was in Florida. And for a city kid at that point, I, I really never thought I would survive in the panhandle of Florida. But that was 18 years ago. Um, obviously loved it. Spent almost five years in the Navy and then got a fantastic opportunity to stay here when uh, Dr. James Andrews opened what is now the Andrews Institute. And so I became lucky enough to uh, join with a, a group of great talented surgeons and, and now what is a pretty much a musculoskeletal specialized hospital that is in the same hometown I lived in when I was in the Navy. I see. So I was trying to figure that out because I saw your practice, but it's in the Andrews Institute. So that's physically where you are. And that is the hospital. Is that, is that how this works? Well, so the Andrews Institute is a freestanding facility with uh, many offices. It's an entity owned by Baptist Healthcare. There's another uh, part, an annex uh, 
one of their satellite hospitals, Gulf Breeze Hospital, is on site. That's where inpatient surgery occurs. In the Andrews Institute, there's a surgical center where all of our outpatient surgery occurs. And then within the Institute, there are multiple different uh, physicians. And uh, so I'm, I'm an independent physician, technically speaking, within the Andrews Institute. Interesting. So let me go right, uh, play off what you just described, because I'm on the phone with a lot of knee patients, a lot of knee replacement patients. And I don't know if it's just me and my conversations, but of late, I'm hearing a lot of people, increasingly large numbers of percentages that are having outpatient total knee replacement. Is this just me or is this a real trend that's sort of happening right now? Would you say? No, it is absolutely a real trend. And um, there are a number of reasons for it. Uh, There are many reasons for it, most of which had to do with the benefits to the patient. But it also has turned into financial benefit for the overall cost of healthcare. And of late, there's really been an acceleration for many patients to have same-day surgery because there's not a lot of people wanting to be in a brick-and-mortar hospital in this pandemic. And so the motivation to get it done and get home has, has really hit the gas pedal uh, recently. We've been doing outpatient total joints, knees, shoulders, uh, and hips here for about five years and really started with a very narrow focus on the extremely healthy younger patient who would would do well and had a great support system. And they, they really did so well that it's, it's kind of grown. And this is the same trend that you see nationally into including really a, a much larger percentage of people who are having the surgery. And what we know is that people who are more active tend to have fewer complications and people who go to their own home, as long as they've got a support system, tend to do much better when they can have the therapist right there in their home for a few days as opposed to lying in a hospital bed. Makes sense to me. I, I'm, I drank the Kool-Aid on that one a, a long time ago when I started looking at results with folks that went into inpatient facilities for a week or two and compared to home care or, you know, just going home. I, I know some surgeons, you know, it's, it's not even home care. It's right out to an outpatient clinic for at least the total knee. But you're right. But let me ask you this though. I, I I was sort of sent in the direction when I was looking at your website and thinking about this conversation on shoulders, sports medicine, and when it comes to knees, more ACL, meniscus kind of stuff. Am I wrong about that? Do you do a lot of total knees yourself? I do. Yeah, I do a lot of total knees. Thanks for pointing that out. I probably need more educational stuff about knee replacements on my site. Really, the way my practice has matured, I. I focus on really treating the athlete all the way through life, meaning if it's a middle schooler with a sports injury, uh, obviously we'll deal with most of those in a non-operative fashion and education fashion right through to the more significant operative injuries, but really all the way through retirement age where people are still wanting to be active and, and they may not be playing football anymore, but you know, certainly for some people getting able, getting out to garden or hike or do things that they love to do is, is their sport. It's their passion. And so the motivation of the patient really remains the same. The things that change are their activities and what the surgery is. And so for the aged athlete, 
in the knee, the most common surgery is going to be the knee replacement. Some meniscal work for sure, but we're seeing knee replacements done now in a, a really expanding number of people. Every year, the number of total knees goes up. The average age of the patient getting it goes down. I think that's to some degree due to aging baby boomers who are getting this surgery a lot sooner than perhaps their parents did. But it's also, it's better results are happening because we've learned so much over the years about how to treat patients and how to be more aggressive with their care postoperatively and really get them moving and, and focus on avoiding complications. Do you find that a younger patient has some more pronounced challenges? Is the body different for a 45-year-old compared to a 70-year-old? And does that add to the difficulty at all? With regards to knee replacements? Yeah, I'm um, thinking about knee replacements right now, yeah. I would say yes. And, and the reason is that, that as you get down into that age group of the 45 to 55-year-old, usually the knee replacement is being done for post-traumatic reasons, meaning that's the unfortunate individual who probably had a bad injury, fracture, accident, sports injury many years before. So their, their knee has worn out prematurely into you know, their 40s versus someone who has osteoarthritis. And that's much more commonly going to happen not until in your 60s and 70s. And the reason it's more challenging is that those people tend to have had already multiple surgeries. They can be much more stiff to begin with. And it just makes things a little bit more challenging for them to, to regain motion and to regain what we would call normal knee function. And that's, that's maybe anecdotal to some degree, but uh, I think on average, yeah, it might be a, a little bit different for your younger person to, to recover from this. I've got two things to say about that. Number one, I listened to an interview with a knee patient in Michigan just yesterday. It's going to be an upcoming podcast on this, this network. And you just described this lady, Sarah, to a T. She had a total knee, believe it or not, at, I think she was in her early thirties, but it all, yeah, I know really early, but it it all stemmed from a high school injury. She was a Olympic bound runner and she had 10 different arthroscopies and, and work done to the point where she needed the total knee. And then she entered my world and I heard this interview because she needed a revision. The total knee didn't work. And then she had a revision and it was just this epic tale. She's finally mm-hmm. in, in decent shape, but boy, did you describe that, that woman, Sarah perfectly. That's my first just observation. So, wow, you're good. That was, that was right on. Um, <laughs> but secondly, it's a common story. Uh, well, okay. sadly, right. But you really nailed it. But, but here's my other question. This is a PJ theory. And I think since I'm not a surgeon and I may be crazy, but uh, you can dispel this PJ theory. And that is, I've had it described to me by some that they describe a younger body as being more efficient. And because it's more efficient and it may be in quotes, this is non-medical, wound tighter, uh, muscles are stronger, muscles are more uh, used to hardcore motion, et cetera, that the body may create and repairs, create tissue and repair more quickly at a younger age than when you're older. Is this craziness or is there anything to that, would you say? No, I think there's, there's something to that 
which would, might be a more broad statement saying that the younger we are, the quicker we heal. Mm-hmm. The younger we are, the more healing potential we have. With regards to the surgery itself, the more muscular people are, actually the more traumatic the surgery may be. Meaning, for instance, I do a lot of shoulder replacements as well, and, and you need to get at the area by going between muscles. Well, if it's a 75-year-old small lady who's not got a whole lot of muscle definition, that's a very easy and atraumatic surgery. For the post-weightlifting 55-year-old barrel-chested guy who still has huge pecs and deltoid, he's going to be pretty sore because it takes a lot of work to get through those larger muscles. Postoperatively, though, there's no arguing that the healing is going to happen more quickly in younger people on average. They just have a, a more capacity, uh, more stamina, and there are varying degrees of motivation, which also are maybe more subjective. But on average, I think people who are younger are going to have a little bit of an easier time when you look at the entire spectrum of recovery. Hmm. Very interesting. It's funny you say about the motivation because that's been described to me as well, where people, it's so funny. It's, it's a generalization, but, and we talk about millennials with such scorn, right? But unfair to, to that group, but the idea right. that they're not ready for pain or they're not going to be, you know, uh, work is hard. They're expecting the, the surgery to fix the problem on its own, that kind of thing. And that may or may not be true, but. Um, well, you know, I'll, so I'll tell you this. One thing that's not easily measurable is exactly that. What is, what is an individual's pain tolerance? What is their motivation to get better? And, you know, the longer I do this, the more I feel like I'm better at predicting that. So as a, for instance, I, I saw a really awesome woman today, 77 years old, still walks six miles a day on her treadmill every day. And she's done everything possible to avoid knee replacement surgery that you can imagine. And you look at the x-rays and you think, my goodness, how does this woman even get up out of bed in the morning? And yet she's telling me a story of how she finally decided on her last trip to Europe when she was exploring different, you know, Roman ruins that, that she couldn't quite keep up to her family. And so... (laughs) Right off the bat, I know that this woman's chronologic age matters not. She's an otherwise healthy woman. She's, you know, really pretty in shape for any age. She's going to just knock it out of the park, you know. Conversely, as much as I'd love to tell you that all younger people will do better, if I have a 50-year-old who just, you know, the x-rays don't look that bad. Sure, you've got arthritis, but man, is it really that debilitating? And these are the same people who want instant satisfaction and return to work without a lot of effort and therapy. And you've, you've got to set expectations. It's a huge part of, of all surgeries, but especially knee replacements. It's a very physical thing. You're, you're working really hard. You're leaning in. You've got to be in pretty good shape, I have to guess, to do this stuff, right? Um, I could be in better shape, <laughs> but it, you know, it's, it is physical work. It's probably not quite as barbaric as, as people think. Um, it's actually fairly precise. Yes, we're, we're using power tools and saws and mallets, but uh, you know, it's not like we're putting up fences all day. Th- those power tools are there for precision. Um, and really, because they are power tools, they take a lot of the work out of our hands. And so um, it, it's, you know, 
it's work, but I love it. And I think most people who are in my position would tell you the same. Are there any that are harder or easier than, than others surgeries wise? I would say if you are doing orthopedic trauma, you can, you can really start to sweat there. You know, if you've got long bone fractures of, of the lower extremities and you're trying to, you know, realign those bones and, and get a rod right down the middle and, You've got to, of course, get everything anatomically perfect. Takes a lot of traction and rotation and pushing and pulling. And uh, those are definitely the days when I was doing that type of stuff where I was sweating the most. So Hmm. those those men and women in orthopedic trauma, they're working. They're sweating every day. Wow. Do you do revision work for like a total knee in that case? I do some. I I do uh, because in this building, there are so many subspecialist. There are several very talented surgeons who do a lot of revisions. And since their arrival, I've, I've really done less of the knee revision work. My focus on the complex cases in the revision has really shifted more towards shoulders. So in the shoulder replacement world, I, I do quite a few and I do a lot of shoulder revisions of cases the replacements that didn't go well. You know, I've not been there. I did see some video of the Andrews Institute. It looks like a palace. It looks gorgeous uh, from what I could tell. Is the patient population more local? Is it growing? Is it national? It seems like people would be traveling to the Andrews Institute to take advantage of this place. Yeah, there, there's definitely a national flair because of my senior partner who is the namesake of the building, Dr. Andrews, is a, he's a world-renowned sports surgeon whose name is, is, you know, on ESPN fairly frequently. Your, name your favorite athlete. He's probably been to see Dr. Andrews at some mm. point. Wow. And so they're coming in from all over. For the rest of us in the building, we're covering, as I said, that other spectrum of athletes from, from the young school-aged through the, the working active adult through the retiree person who's maybe worn out their joints. And so we have a a large market share locally. Probably our biggest amount of of business is more regional. So, you know, probably the the people who come within a two or three hour drive of of Pensacola, Florida, they make up a, a real large percentage of the patients who are coming here. And what about those people that do want to travel? Are you guys set up with, I mean, there must be regional hotels and are, you're kind of used to people flying in, that kind of thing? Yeah, you know, where I'm sitting in my office, I'm looking about a quarter of a mile away to water. And then just over that bridge is the Barrier Island, Pensacola Beach, which for anyone who's not ever been to the Gulf Coast of Florida, and for someone who's partial to all things New England, I will admit the most beautiful beaches in the country are wow. right here. And so wow. lots of hotels over there and, and not a bad place to come and convalesce if you have to travel somewhere. I ask for a reason because I am on the phone with, um, I don't know, eight to 12 knee patients every day. And a lot of them are in trouble. It didn't go well. Something just didn't click and recovery has been a struggle or they have been, you know, years with poor performance and they need a revision. And it's good to know that you guys can sort of accommodate that, that population. Cause I'm, I mean, they're all over the country, people that are on the phone with me. So, you know, let's, let's chat a little bit about 
the other things that can be done through your practice that are not surgical? Uh, because I did watch some good content on your site, once again, about stem cell therapy, PRP. I think it was, I don't know if she's still with your company, but um, Amanda Wolford, who did a great regenerative medicine thing. Do you do a lot of that? Is that part of this you know, cradle to grave kind of treatment that you're, you offer? I'm doing more of it as the, the science kind of uh, catches up with the excitement. Amanda is awesome, by the way. Unfortunately, she's moved on to greener pastures and has another job. But as a group, we're definitely seeing more and more interest in the patients and in all populations about stem cells. It was interesting today. One of my last patients was 87. Hmm. And this gentleman was asking me if stem cells were, were going to fix his problems almost fountain of youth sort of questions. And, and that's been, for me, the battle with adopting regenerative medicine into my practice, because although it's really exciting and undoubtedly the future, it is still not really the magic bullet that we hope it will be. And so people sometimes have really unrealistic expectations about what stem cells and PRP will do. And so that's why on my site, I try to have some basic information about, you know, what it really is for. In general, as a broad statement, maybe the most important thing about all of it is that it's safe. That's our first responsibility as surgeons is to make sure we're doing things that are safe. And so the injection of, of your own cells, uh, concentrated either platelets or stem cells is certainly safe. How efficacious they are depends on number of factors and there's been a lot of, of real promise for chronic tendonitis, uh, certainly some with arthritis. There's a, a nice study that just came out recently for stem cells and knee arthritis. Every time you turn around, there's, there's more ways to do this. You can get stem cells from marrow. You can get stem cells from fat. There's different ways to isolate them. You can get stem cells from amniotic tissue. What has not kept up with all of the advances in ways to use stem cells is research to prove which way is better. And so that's the, the fuzzy gray area that I live in when patients come in asking for stem cells. I tell them it's exciting. I tell them it's certainly an option. It's, it's one that if you're fortunate enough to, to have the ability to pay for it, because unfortunately it is not covered by insurance at this point, uh, then it may be an option, but it's not a miracle for everybody. And so you have to accept the potential that it, it may not be the magic bullet that you were hoping for. Seems like you've got to pay attention to the every study that comes out because it's such a moving target. I, I'm fascinated to hear you say that it is the future, though. That's pretty clear to you that this is where we're going to be in 10, 15, 20 years? I think so. I don't know whether it's 10, 15, or 50. There's, there's just no doubt that once we figure out how to safely manipulate stem cells and, and essentially engineer them to go and produce whatever our body is lacking, then it will cure a lot of issues. And so, as a, for instance, arthritis is the loss of cartilage, the loss of chondrocytes. And so, if we knew of a way to put stem cells in and say, go make lots of cartilage, we would do that and your knee would be resurfaced and joint surgeons would be put out of business. 
The problem is, is you need to be able to turn that off because any cell that grows unregulated is by definition cancer. And that's why at this stage, we are not allowed to re-inject any cells into the human body in the United States that have been manipulated in any way. Mm-hmm. And so what you're getting are simply the progenitor kind of apex cells that you hope recognize their environment and figure out what they should do. Meaning, okay, they're in the knee, maybe they should go make cartilage or, you know, they're in a spinal cord injury, maybe they should regenerate neural tissue. But I I think there's just no question that someone's going to figure out a a way to safely do this by programming things to turn off, turn on which cells they need to replicate. Uh, It's a little bit of science fiction at this point, but it wouldn't surprise me if my grandchildren were getting stem cell therapy with more frequency than mm-hmm. we are now. Mm-hmm. I'm uh, not a trained medical professional, so I'm going to ask a uh, interesting but maybe irrelevant question. And that is, is this uh, in any way, you're talking about turning them on, turning them off, controlling them, having the handles basically to direct the stem cells to do what you want them to do. Is it related in any fashion or could it be described in comparison to gene editing, CRISPR, that kind of thing, the controls that we're trying to gather there? Or is that completely? I think that may be more at the molecular level. Genetic engineering would would probably really have more to do with larger organ systems and the, you know, the development or, you know, potentially identifying genetic dysfunction or abnormalities that you could magically clip out, remove, and do away with the chronic disease. Right, right. Thank you for being gentle with my question. I appreciate it. Well, that. yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm not a geneticist or a molecular biologist either, so that's my orthopedic explanation. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> I had to go there. It was in my mind. I didn't want to let it sit, even if it was crazy. Tell me about telehealth, covid your world over the last six months, we're in uh, just the, almost October, we're right at the end of September right now. Uh, so we've all been dealing with this for six, seven months or so, depending on our geography. You're treating patients remotely, I, I'm sure, right? Uh, well, how's that working? How is it different? Is it just as good or what are you giving up? Tell, tell us about that, if you could. So there, there's certainly pluses and minuses, and it really depends on what you are seeing your doctor for. So in my world in orthopedics, if you've already had treatment, be it an injection, you know, you've had your diagnostic tests, you've had your diagnosis, you've had a treatment, and whether that's an injection or surgery, and you're just following up, well, that's a, a telemedicine visit that might make sense because, well, maybe you're doing great. And instead of driving 45 minutes and sitting in my waiting room to come in and see me for 10 so that you can say, hey, um, thanks a lot for that knee scope. I feel great now. And then going back to work, you can step out into the hallway or in a private room and do it over the phone in 10 minutes. And so for those sort of quick check-in type visits, I think it's great. In orthopedics, it does not translate well for the initial visit. The, the initial visits require not just the history, which can be taken through telehealth, but also physical examination and usually some diagnostics, even just basic x-rays, which obviously you cannot do through telehealth. So there are some hurdles. The good news with COVID was that 
they took away a lot of the regulatory barriers for us to figure things out. So I was already pushing telemedicine in my practice because I saw its utility as a convenience for people who traveled a long distance and didn't want to maybe come back five or six hours from another part of Florida for a post-op visit. And what they did with COVID was they removed the regulations on how you can communicate with patients. And all of a sudden it's okay to use FaceTime or Duo or, or Zoom or any of these other platforms that we all know so well now to communicate. And so that just opened up the ability for us to really figure out what we can and can't do. I think it's here to stay. I think it's gonna be a huge benefit to people who are really in rural areas who maybe don't have access to specialists because although, as I've mentioned, it's not perfect, uh, it's better than nothing. And so when you've got someone who cannot otherwise access a specialist, this is going to be a great first step for them to use telehealth, which they can do from anywhere. We were talking about marketing before the call and your site and communicating and social media and all the things that we all do to share news about what we're doing. I do a lot of that myself, thinking of myself as a communicator, trying to connect people with the right information, you know, from what I do, from my seat, it becomes all the more important. If you're able to treat people deep into Alabama, go, go into New Orleans or move all the way around the country because of telehealth, the more that you can establish a national audience, a national platform for the work you're doing, the more people you can help. The, the geography starts to go away, right, as a limiter in terms of who you can reach and who you can treat. It's going to be a very different world. And I think you're right. I hear that it is here to stay. I have a, a physical therapist in Midtown Manhattan. And because of the loosening of those rules, he's able to treat a much larger audience than he's ever been able to treat. His office is across from Carnegie Hall, but he's treating people all over the place now who have no business, you know, they would never visit him in person, but now they're his patients. Right. So. right. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting, like everything else, um, all of our kids have learned that, that it doesn't, you don't need to be in a school to be in school. Now it's a Zoom class from your kitchen. So many of my friends and colleagues in New York and other cities expect to maybe never go back to the office. And if they do, it'll be very infrequent because of the ability to do things remotely. You know, similarly, although I put up a lot of my, my telehealth stuff through my platforms for my own patients' benefit, I started getting random inquiries from places all over the country and even other countries. I got a couple of calls from some athletes in Germany. It was pretty interesting. I thought that was cool. But, sure. you know, it does just go to show it. it, rem it there are some barriers, but it removes a lot of others. It's really exciting for you know, someone who's business-minded, your practice, the video work, all the educational work. That's, that website is global. I mean, you're, you can reach anybody anywhere in the world. And if you've got the answers to that soccer player's problem from my beloved Leipzig you know, team, yeah. and, and, you know, I mean, why, why not? It's a flight away and, and you can be seeing that beautiful view and seeing the beach and, and doing your recovery. I mean- I, I think that's really a, uh, it's, it's a very different world. And, and you're right. It was just seven months ago. Yeah. Remember good old February when everything was normal? I mean, it, and suddenly the world is so upside down in some bad ways. But in, I mean, there are just big opportunities 
right now for practices like yours or my friend who's the physical therapist. And, um, you know, I, I see the, this is a, a big, big, big change. And, and we are used to Zoom. And, and, and we're, I, my problem is, I think we're getting lazy. I think we're efficient, but I think we're sitting around a lot more. We're not even getting on the train. We're not even getting into our car. We're sitting in the kid's room which is a little hint as to where I am right now doing this. <laughs> it's like I got up and I sat down and now I'm at work. It's, it's, a, it's a little bit more, even more sedentary, I think, than we have been in the past. So Yeah, you know, I, as I mentioned earlier in the call, I, I'm a city kid at heart and really still love the city. And my family and friends are all still in Boston and, and uh, love going up there and, and really always kind of expected that maybe later in life I would end up there. But I will tell you, that I've never been happier to live in a wide open space down mm-hmm. here in Panhandle than in the last six months. Yeah. Because my sisters and other friends have the same experience that you're having where they're pretty much confined to their, their homes and apartments. And so we've been really blessed. And I think other people would tell you the same people who can go outside yeah. and enjoy nature a little bit. Yeah. And that may be one of the silver linings that a lot of people who could have taken advantage of those things before, but weren't now realize that, you know what, it's kind of nice just going out for a nice walk on the beach or a hike or bike ride or things that we never thought to do before. How interesting. A very real insight there. I, I you are hard to do in Manhattan though. Well, it's harder. I mean, we're, we're, we're much less confined, but you're right. You're completely right about that. You touched upon the, the fact of appreciation. You can go to the beach. You can take a walk. You really, you know, it's not going to get you on the beach. It's a wide open space. It's breezy. You're, you're pretty safe. And, you know, you're able to do those things that a lot of other people just can't right now. So Yeah, we're very fortunate. Yeah. There was something on your website that I found really interesting. It was very data driven. And I think you're calling it, or maybe it's broadly known, and I, I didn't really know this term, SOS, Surgical Outcomes System. And it, there's quite a bit of, of your use of that and participation with that. Do you mind just uh, telling me a little bit more, telling us a little bit more about what that is and how that's playing a role in your practice? The SOS is a proprietary program from a company called Arthrex, which is a, a huge orthopedic implant company. And they have made that tool available to all surgeons to measure what are called patient-reported outcomes. And those are the standardized questions that we use in medicine to effectively rate how the patients are doing. And so in orthopedics, it might be something like, okay, you answer these 10 questions before you have your rotator cuff uh, operated on or shoulder replaced. And it's as simple as, can you throw a ball put on your belt, put on your bra, things like that. How much pain do you have? Zero to a hundred. And then you record those before the procedure and at different time points after the procedure. And you can graphically see how your patients do as individuals, but also how they do as a group. And so that's really the most objective way for me to look at my patients to see how they're doing. And it's what we do in research and when we publish peer-reviewed articles, most often if it's a clinical study where at least part of it is patient-reported uh, outcomes. And so I thought it would be nice to just put it out on the site and kind of put it out there because people come in and they say, well, well, how do your surgeries do, Dr. O'Grady? And of course, my answer is, well, all my patients, they all do great. 
And I think we'd all like to think that all of our patients do great. Well, that's not really true. Most of them do great. Some of them do exceptional. And, you know, there might be only a few who don't do well. But if we're not looking objectively at what the differences are, then we're not getting better. So in collecting that data, I can look to see, well, who who's doing exceptionally well with pain relief and range of motion and maybe how what was different about them as an individual or their pathology or their surgery or even their implant that might separate them from the people who don't do as well. And so what's on the site are just some basic graphs that kind of outline how my last, uh, you know, I don't know, 100 or whatever it was, 200 shoulder replacements and rotator cuffs and how, how they do. And it, it gives the patient kind of an average expectation of, in a realistic expectation of what their pain relief is going to be over time. And it's, it's a little bit easier than just saying, you're going to do great. It's a little bit of a report card. Uh, it seems. Yeah. It's my own report card. Yeah. Put out there. Yeah. This is PJ Ewing, uh, the bees knees podcast, knee radio one. I'm here with Dr. Christopher O'Grady. The website is ogradyorthopedics.com spelled that funny way. Is that Greek? What is that? Yeah. Spelling? It's kind of the sticking to the, Greek roots of the word. Classic. Yeah. It's yeah. Very stylish. Very stylish. Um, <laughs> I'm glad you're here. This is, um, it's really interesting to hear you talk. Um, I appreciate your data-driven approach because you're right. Everyone doesn't do fabulously and there are problems and there are things that you can't quickly solve or it might take, you know, a lot of physical therapy after surgery. You just don't know. Um, and I, you know, I appreciate the honesty because you're right. People, we only want to show the good stuff. But I'm that guy, as you know, on the, at least in the knee side of things, and I get those phone calls. And so my world is sort of skewed. I think everybody's got a problem because all the problems seem to find me. And I have those, those uh, hard conversations uh, every day. And I'm just trying to you know, provide guidance. I noticed you went to Ecuador a couple times, 2017, 2019. What's that all about? What's that thing? So there's um, an orthopedic surgeon who practiced and then retired here in Alabama, not too far away, who has built his own clinic down in Puerto Viejo, Ecuador. And he has for years now been setting up trips for teams of surgeons, nurses, and anesthesiologists to go down and provide orthopedic surgical care and non-surgical care to the people in that region. And he's really been doing, it's a phenomenal spot and it's he and his wife um paul and floor fellers they're they're amazing people and they're so dedicated to to this one particular spot and you know as much as everyone says oh i'd like to do some service work it's really kind of hard in medicine because even in other third world countries where you're needed you can't just show up and do things there's there's regulations there's licensing there's the equipment. There's the lack of equipment. There's really kind of how do, you, how do you figure out who the patients are? So Paul has done a great job of really he's down there seeing the patients, figuring out who needs surgery, teeing them up, getting them ready. They're constantly asking for donations from the surgeons who go down there for equipment. And, and they've really kept up a fantastic little two-room OR suite. And they really kind of make it easy. You know, it's fun. It's, it's really what mission work's all about. We go down there 
and we work really hard for nine or 10 days and we help a lot of people and you feel productive and then you turn around and come home. And I like it because I just, I enjoy traveling as well. And I love Central and South America. So it was a good opportunity for me. Unfortunately, my trip in November is not going to happen because of all the COVID stuff, but I hope to maybe go in 2021. That must feel so good to go down there and do that work. I, I have to believe. Yeah, it's really, it's, it's cool because it, it is, brings you back to why you went to med school. You know, it, it, it takes away a lot of the stresses of paperwork and insurance and politics. Um, and, and really more than anything, you're dealing with people who are so incredibly thankful. You know, they, they really are so gracious um, but also they, they realize that they wouldn't likely ever have an opportunity to have some of these surgeries, even though we consider them basic, you know, ACL surgeries don't happen very often in Ecuador. And we think that the vast majority of people playing a sport down there or playing soccer, there are a lot of ACL tears. And, you know, if you get an ACL tear in Ecuador, you probably just don't play soccer anymore. Hmm. If you get a really bad one, you may not be able to work anymore. So, you know, here in the States, you get an ACL tear, you expect to be in the operating room within a couple of weeks to get it fixed because it's just routine. Down there, it can be something that affects an entire family. You know, when you can get somebody's knee fixed or shoulder or whatever, and, and then they are functional in society again. And not only do they get to go run around and play soccer, but they can work and earn a living for their family. It's, it's really neat. It's so devastating, that ACL. I'm a big Red Bulls soccer fan. I live not far from the team in Harrison, New Jersey. I'm in lower Manhattan. And we had a star or young budding uh, import from France named Florian Velo. And Florian Velo, like fabulous, this cool looking, you know, French guy mm -hmm. on our team and the ACL, right leg. He goes down, right, right knee, right, right in front of us. Season over. Okay, darn it. You know, a year goes by. Florian's back. There he is. He's back. He looks so good. He's got a game under his belt. Left ACL, right oh, in front gosh. of us. Now he's back three years later. He's so far had a good season. In fact, we're playing um, Orlando on Saturday. Your New York Florida rivalry. Such a long, tough recovery. And from my understanding, it, you know, you tell me where I'm crazy, but it, you may never be the same. An ACL, you know, it's, it's going to be weaker just forever, isn't it, after you have it repaired? Not necessarily weaker, hmm. but it would be inaccurate to say that 100% of people get back to where they were before. A very high percentage of people return to activities. Probably two-thirds to three-quarters will get back to the previous level of activity, hmm. but it's not 100%. Okay. Um, okay. It's a the thing is though it's a great surgery because without it, you're as I mentioned these poor people in Ecuador forget about playing elite soccer. You may not be able to to go out and and mow the lawn. Right. So you know it's a it's a great surgery and it is a tough rehab, and it's it's tough for someone who is that elite to to return to the same level. Yeah. But for most of us, we get back and we can do our weekend warrior stuff. Well, since I focus all my attention on knees, I have clearly ignored your work, which is a big part of your practice on shoulders. We should definitely talk about that a little bit. I guess 
I, I don't know a lot about the shoulder. I know you do replacements, but is there a common scenario? Is it a pitcher? Is it a high schooler? Who's coming to you mostly? And what kind of work are you really doing on the, on the shoulder? Well, I kind of see the whole spectrum. So the injuries differ according to the age. The, the younger people I see generally are acute injuries. They've fallen, they've dislocated their shoulder or torn their labrum. Some of them are um, related to overhead pitching, and, and that's kind of the, maybe the most stereotypical sort of thing that, that we would see as an orthopedic surgeon is a, a young athlete who's throwing too much too hard, and they get overuse injuries. And so um, I do a lot of educating locally baseball organizations, um, which I got into because I became one of the parents and coaches. There's a lot of treatment of overuse injuries in that age group. And then the overuse injuries carry on through, really through through life and into you know young adulthood, middle age. The injuries become a little bit more focused on things like the rotator cuff, which can be painful and can be either acutely torn or sometimes just insidiously over the course of months and years. The rotator cuff tears, and that's a surgery that that I really enjoy. And I I think most sports surgeons will tell you it's very satisfactory because it's a uh, really cool instrumentation, always getting better. We can do so much now through the scope, through tiny incisions that couldn't have been done through open incisions. And people get back to normal. They feel great. And then the, uh, the older patients with, with similar problems also get to the point where they wear out their shoulders, and that's where the replacements come in. And uh, I, I really enjoy that. That's, I think, the most challenging surgery that I do. But it's also probably the most rewarding because you can you can take somebody who's got a horribly painful, chronically painful shoulder, and they wake up and their pain's gone. Mm-hmm. And so similar to a knee replacement, the outcomes are great, but a shoulder replacement gets there much quicker. As you know, uh, PJ, the, the people who have had that surgery can tell you that it's a long road to recover. It's a lot of work for the knee to move and get rid of the soreness and the swelling. Most of them end up really feeling great. Uh, shoulder replacements are, are unique in that they, uh, they don't have nearly the post-operative pain and they feel good right away. Wow. Is it robotic like the Mako system? There's Da Vinci out there. Is it, is ro- are, are robotics in all of the surgeries that you're doing nowadays or how does, how does that fit? So not yet. Um, robotics and knee surgeries is almost ubiquitous at this point in most metropolitan areas. At the Andrews Institute here, we have um, something called a Navio, or now their newer version called the Cori robotic system, which is from Smith and Nephew. And it's a competitor to the Mako, but the idea is the same. The, it's really robotic-assisted surgery. And so the vision that some patients have that I'm kind of in the corner of the room having a cup of coffee while the robot does the work is not accurate. Mm-hmm. Um, really what it is is a live feedback of real-time data that I'm getting visually as I do the surgery. And what it does is it helps very precisely place the implants because how, uh, whether it's a knee or a shoulder, how that implant or a hip, how it goes in matters. Um, because although the pain relief will be there, getting it in precisely in certain orientations in three dimensions will make it function better, meaning more motion, 
more importantly, it'll make it last longer so that hopefully this patient never has to have it revised. And even the best surgeons and the most experienced surgeons doing it without advanced instrumentation will have an outlier, what we call every once in a while, where they, they just, for whatever reason, got a bit disoriented and the implant goes in in too many degrees, one direction or the other. And that can be a big deal for the patient. So what the robotic systems do now is they really eliminate those outliers. And so we're becoming much more precise and accurate with the use of these tools. And it's really exciting. And for a guy who's, who's data-driven and kind of techie and nerdy, I, I really enjoy it. Those systems don't exist in shoulder replacement surgery yet. However, they're, they're in the making. And I'm, I'm kind of involved with a couple of different companies in, in pushing that next advance and, and hope to see that come to fruition sometime relatively soon. And for all the same reasons, just to really make more consistent good outcomes for patients. I've got to believe there's extensive training requirements for any of these systems because, you know, there's so much data. You just have to be, you know, I have to understand what the machine's telling you. I'd have to believe. Well, yes and no. So you need to understand any tool that you're going to use. I think the extensive training falls back on the, the surgeon's experience as an orthopedic surgeon. As I mentioned, it's, it's a new and very useful tool that's used in the operating room. But, you know, the training per se for these things isn't super extensive. I think everyone likes to get their hands on it, play with the equipment at a meeting or a conference. Generally, we will practice in a lab several times just so that we're comfortable with, with how to use the instrumentation, but also as you said, how to interpret all the data that's, that's flowing back and forth. Ultimately, though, we're still responsible as the surgeon for all the standard things that happen during a joint replacement. So, you know, you've got to know when to trust the instrumentation and, and when to trust your instincts. And the better the instrumentation gets, the more it, it becomes trusted. Hmm. I have a very good friend uh, named Dr. David Halley. And he doesn't practice anymore. He uh, used to practice in Columbus. But he, early in his career, Ohio State guy, right out of medical school, went to Ridington, England. And he worked with Sir John Charnley, Dr. Charnley. One wow. of the pioneers, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. famous to you, of course. And he did hips. He did some knees, but it was almost all hip work for about six months. They wrote some papers together. But I, the reason I bring him up, I mean, he's, he's a lovely man and and. So, you know, terrific and helpful and all that stuff. But, but he described those days. I did a, a, an interview with him. He said, we, the night before, we would make the tools that we were going to yeah. use in the surgeries for the next day. It couldn't be farther from your awesome Mako machine, right? I mean, and we're going to look back at anything that isn't, isn't Mako or Navi, as you said, or the other systems. Um, we're going to look back on those. It's like primitive, right? Of course it's robotic assisted, you know, of course that's just how it's done. You know, right, right. now it's the transition, but you know, it, it'll be the stone age thinking back to anybody who didn't have a robotic assistant assisted work, I think. Right. Yeah. I mean, like any profession, you know, I'm the beneficiary of all the smart people who have come before me and yeah. all the things that they've come up with. And, 
you know, things that are now standard were, were once thought to be insane. So the, the most commonly used instrument in orthopedic sports medicine is the arthroscope. It's the little instrument that's used to see everything inside the joints. And it was very famously called the tool of the devil by a very famous orthopedic surgeon who thought that it was just going to be a fad that it would never take. Hmm. Now it's standard of care in virtually every small arthroscopic hmm. surgery, sports uh, surgery. And, and, you know, it's robotic surgery is not gold standard yet. Um, this is, as you said, we're in the transition phase. And so mm -hmm. the people who are, are pushing the envelope will likely be the ones to start making the great statements that, you know, we finally got it to the point where it's better. You know, now we're kind of at the equal to mark, but you're right in the future, there's likely going to be surgeons who have never seen a knee or shoulder or hip done without a robot. Right. I saw a few of your presentations. I saw one at least about the shoulder uh, at O'GradyOrthopedics.com for those still uh, wanting to play along at home. Uh, you are out speaking in lots of places, probably less, I'm guessing, because of this situation we're all in. But are you out there in different states, in different cities usually? And once we're past this COVID thing, will you, will you be back out there talking? And I, I guess I, I bring that up because I'd love everyone to go watch your presentations, but it would be great to meet you in person when you're out doing some of your, your work. I'm just wondering what that's all about. Yeah, most of the talks that I do are academic conferences with uh, other surgeons. Okay. And I do some community talks, just educational things locally. Right. Like everything else, though, it's been completely put on hold. And we've tried, I've done some virtual teaching of a big conference that was supposed to be uh, a national conference in April that turned into a Zoom conference, which was still good, but not quite the same. I used to have a lot of surgeons visit as well to just kind of come and pick my brain and watch procedures in the OR. Uh, those have stopped. Maybe one of the things that has changed that's kind of cool is that really that does make sense to do virtually because what I'm doing now is I'm able to live stream the procedure that's happening on the scope along with me just wearing some ear pods and I can have a conversation with the surgeon without him having to ever leave his own office in another state. And he can see what I'm doing and talk to me just the same. So that'll probably continue. But the speaking engagements, I can't wait to, to get back to normal just to get out there and, yeah. and, and, you know, interact with colleagues and, well, they're your, they're your people. That's your community and you're not with them. And, you know, there's a cross pollination that's can, is not happening in some cases. I, when you're doing those remotes, are you doing anything with technology like Google Glass or anything along those lines where they can sort of see through your eyes and watch the surgery? Is that what you are, you mean? Or I have not personally done that. That has been done. Mm. Um, I'm At this point, it's just it's the video feed of the actual scope. So I'm looking at I the see. screen in the OR. Okay. So the same feed is, is going Got it. Uh, to their screen. And then there, there can be a second camera that just shows kind of an open view of the room and mm -hmm. what I'm doing around the patient's uh, you know, knee or shoulder or whatever. Yeah, no, that's cool. It's really cool. Thanks so much for, for being here. I, I, I can't thank you enough. And I really, really mean that taking time out of your uh, my late afternoon. It's been great. The Bees Knees podcast comes to you from our studio in lower Manhattan, New York City. 
We're here week in and week out shedding light on all aspects of knee surgery and recovery. To reach us, send an email to thebeesneespodcast at gmail.com.